what we're understanding is our not only mutual responsibility for one another and for the planet in a deeply visceral way, but also the awareness that it doesn't take much to demonstrate how, how quickly we can change our behavior. On a programming note, I'd like to inform the listeners that this episode was recorded in early May prior to the death of George Floyd and the rise of protests around the country. All right. We're here with Ken Jordan. Welcome, Ken. It's great to have you. Great to be here. I'm going to read your bio here before we get started. Ken Jordan is the co-founder and editorial director of Lucid News. In 2007, he co-founded the Consciousness Network Evolver and its online journal Reality Sandwich, which he edited until 2019. At Evolver, he produced podcasts, live events, and online courses with many of the leading figures of the psychedelic movement. And in 2016, Ken co-founded the company's botanical dispensary, The Alchemist Kitchen, in Manhattan. Previously to Evolver, he worked in digital media, leading the 1995 launch of the award-winning Sonic Net, the web's first multimedia music site and digital music store, which later became a property of MTV. As a digital media consultant, his clients include Amnesty International, the Congressional Democratic Leadership, and Peter Gabriel's NGO, Witness, for which he conceived the internet's first human rights video hub. Well, it's um, awesome to have you here, Ken. As as I was kind of saying before we got started, Evolver really was an inspiration for me in uh, starting this podcast. I was kind of uh, getting to know you and and Lou and 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 what you were up to, and and just kind of fell into your podcast and and loved it. Um, and so I. I uh, still think about that as I've been recording these episodes as kind of that being one of the original sparks and being a fan of of Alchemist Kitchen and and Evolver and your work and and now what you're doing with Lucid News. It's awesome to have you here. It's very sweet of you. Thank you so much, Brett. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So um, as you know, we kind of try to tell the full journey and you've got a, a wonderful story uh, and, and I'd love to kind of hear all of it. So if you don't mind kind of going back to the beginning and, and tell me a little bit about kind of your upbringing, your early days. I know there's some good stories and exposure to some pretty amazing artists and innovators and so why don't you kind of share with the audience your kind of early beginnings? Oh, boy. Well, you know, everybody's got good stories. That's the whole point about being a human being. Everybody's got a good story or right. 7,500 good stories that they can tell. Mine, uh, huh, where do I begin? I, well, let's see. I'm, an, I'm fairly old. So that means I was born in, in the, I was born in 61. And I am like a literal child of the 60s in that sense. because. My my family was very much at the center of what you now call the '60s counterculture, right? My dad is the basically with a friend of his. He had a book publishing company called Grove Press. Arnie Rossett was the publisher and his close friend, and they worked together for thirty years um, in a kind of partnership, basically. And Grove was essentially the the switchboard, the communication switchboard. Of the '60s counterculture, the Beats generation, and 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 uh, and the hippie movement, and all the stuff that was going on at that at that time, and uh, they were, and so you know, and I was the kid in the office. I was a little kid in that. Scene. Like, how old are you as the little kid? Well, you know, <laughs> toddler to okay, uh, yeah, you know, like all the way up. Yeah. So, um, you know, I used to spend a lot of time with my dad in his office. Yeah. It's just yeah. how it went. Yeah. And so I got to know a lot of these characters, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Do you whether, remember like what you were thinking about kind of what what you know was going on there? Was it was it interesting? Was it did it feel unique? Was it just kind of what you knew? What was that like? Well, it's a combination of all of that. I mean, I gotta say, um, I was very close to my father as a young person, and he was completely absorbed in the movement of those days. Mm-hmm. Which uh, you know he was very well connected with everybody in that scene, you know whether it was the writers he published like uh, 
Jack Kerouac, William Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, a lot of the Beat Generation, you know, people. They also, uh, you know, published a lot of the European sort of avant-garde figures at that time that were sort of fed into that scene in various ways, whether it was Samuel Beckett or Harold Pinter, but various Nobel Prize winners later. But at that time, they were not particularly well received by what you would call the, the sort of mainstream cultural world. And they also, uh, you know, published uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X and Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon and a lot of the sort of critical political black power um, books of that time. They went to court again and again to publish books that were banned, like Lady Chatterley's Lover. And Tropic of Cancer by uh, Henry Miller. At that time, those books were considered obscene by the courts. And having the book on your person subjected you to possible arrest. Okay. This is, this yeah. is how much the world has changed in, you know, about a half century, right? So his commitment to an engagement in that publishing company where they were uh, making these voices available. Right, championing them, getting them into stores, supporting the bookstores that were being uh, essentially arrested by the police for public for, for presenting books and magazines that they that were considered controversial, but beyond controversial, say obscene or somehow you know like against the against the law to sell. Right, mm-hmm. um, that was very much a part of my home life mm-hmm. growing up. Right, mm-hmm. and, and describe that a little. I mean the the are these guys you mentioned that you know they were spending time together you know they're not just publishing they're yeah. they're they're at your home are they hanging around i mean are you are you do you have a front kind of seat front row seat for for the dialogue of, around what's going on in the world and the importance of 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 getting this work out there uh they were definitely on the phone right and and then i would come in through you know through the office and occasionally you know I mean, another way it showed up on the at, at home was that simply these characters were on TV, right? Yeah, Some yeah. of them, quite a few of them, and we would watch them, and they were my dad's friends, right? Mm-hmm. So that was you know part of it too. Whether it was Allen Ginsberg and you know on front line or whatever with the uh, firing line, I think mm-hmm. that's the William Buckley <laughs> TV show back in the day, right? Um, uh, or um, you know Abby Hoffman became a friend of my dad's. At a certain point, and he later lived in our basement when he was wanted by the FBI. Hmm. Um, wow! And you know, my dad, Grove Press, helped to distribute. Actually, distributed this sort of the famous book that he did back then, which was called "Steal This Book," um, which was kind of a revolutionary underground manual, effectively, uh, that uh, no publisher would touch <laughs> except my dad's company, which uh, helped to distribute it. They wouldn't publish it because that put them into Jeopardy uh, for legal reasons, but they said, "Listen, you get the book printed by somebody, we'll get it into bookstores." And they did, and it became a bestseller. Even though a lot of people stole the book, uh-huh. it was widely stolen, but it was also uh, it also sold well. So, so I'm just I gotta know. So, you're you're how old when Abby Hoffman's living in your basement? Oh, there I was actually. This is a little bit later, so I was 17. Okay, that was and, at and, the end of the 70s. And what's that like? I mean, do you feel like? You know, you're you're energized. I'm imagining. You know, it could be scary. It could be like this is amazing. You know, we're a part of something. What was the what was the kind of feeling in your home about this? I gotta say, when I was that age, I was a little too young to really understand how dangerous it was to have one of the top ten wanted people by the FBI in your basement. Mm-hmm. It just hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, <laughs> it was actually that. Dangerous. He seemed like a very nice guy, um, and uh, he certainly wasn't a violent person, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and he was wanted by a trumped up for a, it, it. It was a stupid entrapment, cocaine deal mm-hmm. thing that he got into because it was quick money, and he was, you know, he thought of himself as this revolutionary outlaw who was outside of the status quo kind of, you know, business world. And he was entrapped into a stupid, like, hey, make some quick cash by handing over some cocaine to somebody and you'll get all this cash in your pocket from it. Mm-hmm. It was like, mm-hmm. it's a way to fund the revolution. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was dumb. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so there you go. But he was, he was not a drug dealer. Right. Um, so 
and he didn't carry any weapons, you know, nothing like that. Anyway, so yeah, at, in those days, we could not call him by his real name. We uh-huh. couldn't call him Abby. Uh-huh. Uh, he was Barry. The okay. name he was using when he was underground was Barry Freed. Wow. Right? F-R-E-E-D. Okay. And, uh, and what he had previously done before he was at our place was he'd been living in upstate New York in a, in, way up in, I think it's like the Thousand Islands area, where the Army Corps of Engineers decided that they were going to flood the area for some reason or another and really destroy the beautiful ecosystem up there. And so while he was underground, using the name Barry Freed, he organized a whole contingent of uh, local Republican uh, uh, neighbors, basically, uh, to uh, protest the Army Corps of Engineers' destruction of that environment. And it got to the point where he was invited to testify in Congress to the Senate, I think, on behalf of the movement to stop the Army Corps of Engineers, right? And after his testimony in the Senate, the New York State Senator, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, pulled him aside for a photo op and thanked him personally for his work on behalf of the state of New York Hmm. in order to preserve the environment. And here he was, one of the top 10 most wanted people by the FBI at the same time, right? So this is, that was... It was pretty cool to have him around. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing how you know some people are just really able to make things happen. And yeah. um, you know what I'm just kind of imagining, you know, is that you know there's this maybe in in history it's it's kind of a glorified time, you know, but it's an important time where you know real um, you know real passion for really important issues was 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 prevalent. And people were taking action on it, and it sounds like you're right in the thick of it all. I mean, that that's got to make a a pretty big impression on you, and kind of starting to form, especially like in your teenage years, you know how you're thinking about the world, um, right? Yeah, it had a huge impact on me, obviously. I mean, one of the things that people don't remember about that period is that the left wing radical folks in that what they called the movement back then actually were deeply committed to a vision of the United States that is uh, democratic and open and engaged right um, that they were envisioning uh, and embodying an active democracy uh, which they felt at the time was was disappearing and that there was a, a kind of, essentially, a kind of corporate takeover of the country that was, uh, on the one hand, supporting segregation uh, and uh, the the you know it was, was was suppressing the black vote, right, in across the country, and at the same time supporting uh, an unjust war, which the country was essentially lied into fighting. If that sounds familiar. It should be right. Right, right. It's happened. It's happened since. Yeah. Um, and the and so you had a lot of people in that movement at that time who were, you know, accomplished, smart people who had done things with their lives, right? Um, who had come. Many of them had come, you know, from well-to-do families that had uh, and had had real, you know, solid education, right? And they didn't. They weren't filled with hate and anger at you know what you know at, at, at the ideas of the United, what make the United States you know a special place they were trying to reclaim that uh, specialness that mm-hmm. sense of openness and possibility which had uh, essentially felt it's been crushed by a, a something that really was I think you know we're still kind of struggling with yeah and, and I'm tempted to kind of you know fast forward to how we still are struggling and and get into how that um, what you're thinking about kind of where we are today, which we'll get to but I, but I want to you know first understand what do you do with that? Where are you with with that um, kind of time uh, that movement you know now now you're starting to 
you know, kind of move um, into your young adult years, you know, how do you start to, um, you know, engage in that in that time in life? Well, I was certainly inspired by that that worldview. Right? It was challenging to be a young person in the 1980s. Uh, seeing the world through radical left 60s counterculture glasses. Okay. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of validation out in the mainstream of American culture for that perspective. Uh, and uh, so I ended up spending my 20s a lot on the Lower East Side of Manhattan with the the so essentially the remnants of the beat hippie punk counterculture movement people who were you know had created it and who were very much a part of it and had lived it for their lives um and i have to say that the interesting thing was that in the 80s in that scene there was a sense that oh this reagan thing is going to go away this is like we have had you know like 25 years of radical expansion and you know, and 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 when crazy, interesting new ideas come out of this culture, they have a tendency to go global. Um, and it had happened again and again and again during that period, from the beats in the fifties all the way through the punk scene in the seventies, late seventies. And it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Starting in the early eighties, that mm-hmm. shifted. Something really shifted, uh, and the kinds of cultural events that would have gotten. Um, attention, and, you know, and 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 really galvanize people. No longer had the same kind of spark. Um, so I, you know, I was lucky because I was able to essentially study politics and culture with people like Allen Ginsberg, who wrote the poem "Howl," who was the inspiration to Bob Dylan and the sure. Beatles, for instance. Yeah. And it's uh, pretty lucky. <laughs> I was pretty. I mean, it was it yeah. was wonderful. You know, amazing. And I spent a lot. I lived in his apartment at one point. It was. Kind of awesome, you know. It's just because my dad and he were friends, really. Yeah. But, you know, sort of, he he tolerated me. <laughs> what was that like living in Ginsburg apartment? I mean, I can't just let that go. Tell me more. Oh my god! Well, I don't know. Like, I don't, how do how do you describe? It? I mean, on the one hand, he lived in a uh, Lower East Side apartment on East Twelfth Street, um, which was how should I put it? He was a poet who was able to live on his poetry. Okay which meant that on the one hand, he had enough money to pay rent, okay? And he actually had an office at that point and he was doing some college teaching that gave him a little bit of cash. But it was not a luxury situation, right? You know, he was living in a tenement building. He'd been living in a tenement building for many, many years. But the interesting thing about his tenement building situation was that he was able to get three apartments next to each other on the same floor and then break, you know, like have them connected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this funny little labyrinthian uh, space that had a lot of little rooms in it, you know. But it was very, you know, but the door, the doorbell in the building didn't work like many of the buildings back then. So you know, if you wanted to actually get inside, you had to stand on the street and scream his name, Alan, to the third <laughs> floor window, and then he would lean his head out and put the key in the sock and throw it onto the street, and you would take the key out and open the door and come upstairs. That's what life was like. That's that kind of how I would imagine it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, there was always incredible, fascinating people in his apartment who would yeah. come in to visit. Uh, other writers and, and political figures and organizers. Interesting thing about him, which many people don't know now, was that he was not just, you know, not just a writer and a cultural figure. He was a real political organizer and, and a instigator in all kinds of ways. One of the things he did was he kept uh, newspaper clippings. You can imagine this is all pre-internet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he kept newspaper clippings about a whole range of topics that very few people actually paid attention to back in those days, relatively speaking. So including uh, the CIA's involvement with, uh, with drugs sales in the United States which had been documented again and again in mainstream newspapers like the New York Times. But people just didn't have access to the clips. So he had all the clips from the reporting of the New York, by the New York Times about the, the CIA's involvement mm-hmm. with 
bringing heroin into the United States and selling it in certain neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Right? All kinds of different articles around these different topics of, of this kind of very politically sensitive material. So he was visited regularly by journalists who would go through his two big file cabinets with newspaper clippings because he had the goods. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, he also had the most extraordinary Rolodex. He had two big, thick Rolodex, round, you know, cards on, you know, sure, you, yeah. you know, with the Henry Kissinger's information wow. was in there, and like, everybody you could think of, because he, he yeah. met everybody, right? Yeah, and he would just come in into his place, and he said, "Okay, go check the Rolodex, and you know, get, get their phone number." Um, and what are you what are you doing at this time? You know, what 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 are you, what's your work? I mean, what tell me, like, you know, kind of. I mean, I can just imagine that that by itself could be just like you could do that all day. You know, you could sit around, watch the people come through and watch them work and be entertained and fascinating. But that's actually kind of what I was doing. So the the reality was I was lucky. I had various jobs when I was young that were kind of cool. Like, you know, because of my family connections, I was the office boy for the No Loose concerts in Madison Square Garden in 1979, Mm. where I got to spend the summer, you know, hanging out with. Jackson Brown and uh, Graham Nash and Bonnie Raitt, who really were the organizers of this thing. And uh, it was five nights in Madison Square Garden to raise money for the um, safe energy uh, movement. I got to spend a week in a rehearsal studio, SIR, with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and see them rehearse for the show. Wow. That was, when you're 17, man, that was awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't care how, whenever, when you're whatever age, that's awesome. It was pretty awesome. That's awesome. Bruce yeah. Springsteen, by the way, has a huge head. If you nobody knows, if you don't see the guy up close, you can't tell, but disproportionately huge to his body. It was one of the fast. I was like, what? It was just uh-huh. strange. I was like, you're not, you're not talking about wow. ego. You're talking about no, no, no. his the size of his actual head. Okay. The, act, the actual physicality. Yeah. Listen, there's a lot of guys out there with big egos, but Bruce yeah. Springsteen, however big his ego, he actually has a physical head to match. Okay. It. Got it. All right. <laughs> I did not know that. Um, and I'm not passing any judgment on no Bruce. Judgment. I, no judgment. No judgment. People, people don't know this unless they're in the room. You know, yeah. Those I'm a fan. So that's, that's cool. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so I had a bunch of sort of interesting gigs like that when I was young. I got to see some really cool things. And then eventually I just sort of stopped. Uh, I dropped out of college at mm-hmm. a certain point because um, my life outside of college was so much more interesting than my life in college. Yeah. And, and I was getting a real education through the access to mostly to the cultural figures in downtown New York. Uh, Richard Foreman was a very important uh, influence on me. He's a theater director and playwright who had. He was like, you know, essentially he's Mr. Avant-Garde theater director and playwright in America. He's won every prize you can imagine. There are textbooks about him. Um, and he uh, did all of his shows in the Lower East Side and remarkably brilliant plays. And so I was able to spend a lot of time with him and work with him on a project. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I kind of, I got to know that milieu. I was, uh, for a while I was organizing homeless people in, you know, Washington, in, in Tompkins Square Park, uh, that when at a time when homelessness really exploded in the 80s and there was no vocal expression for the homeless at the time, there was just sort of without, there were just a presence all over the city suddenly because in those days, Ronald Reagan had cut the funding to, you know, essentially take care of people who were emotionally distressed or unbalanced or needed help and sort of moving them out of the, the institutions where they were at least finding beds onto the street. And there was a sudden influx of, of homeless people all over New York City. And they were being pushed into the parks to where they would sleep. And then it was, it was a terrible situation. So we were working with them to help protect them on the one hand, so they would have someplace safe to stay, but at the same time also give them an opportunity to uh, speak to the media about their situation as the people like the organizations like the coalition for the home coalitions for the homeless were working on their behalf so i was that was a kind of fascinating local neighborhood yeah i mean it's you know what's kind of striking for me is that you you are in this kind of you know starting to emerge you know like i'm going to say media scene which you know maybe it's entertainment it's it's um 
it's creatives, but you're also, you know, really connected to these movements that, you know, whether it be, you know, trying to tackle homelessness or segregation or any of the kind of major issues that you've grown up with and lived through, that that's always been kind of a common thread for you, that it's, it's not just about kind of the creative energy, the theater, the, the music, the, the writers. It was about, you know, something more than that too. Well, one of the things that I really learned from those mentors, really, from, from Ginsburg, from Richard Foreman, from my father and, you know, their, their friends, was how powerful culture is in changing consciousness, which changed society. That if you want to see real political change, the, the way that the left, and I'm very much you know, coming from the, from the tradition of, of, sort of progressive politics in America, um, the left has tended to see things in a very rational way and want people to understand the, the changes that ought to happen through the lens of, well, you know, this just makes sense, right? And you sort of want to be able to argue people into doing the right thing that will ultimately benefit community rather than just enrich yourself. But the cultural left, which is really where these guys were coming from, and in the 60s, there was a real split between the cultural left and the political left. The cultural left understood that people uh, affiliate with a social change movement because it resonates with the way their body vibrates, that it touches them deeply on a cultural and spiritual level, and that it's not the rational argument that gets people to come on board and really participate in change, right? Mm. It's that people are feeling uh, a strong affiliation with a way of being that resonates in their soul. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting um, and certainly something that I can connect to, you know, that there's a, a feeling that you really get that gets you connected and, and inspired and, and uplifted and, 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 and any number of emotions, you know, that um, happens through, um, you know, some sort of um, less than like just straight rational uh, way of, of, of bringing that out. Um, certainly, you know, I can point to music and, and art and, and meditation and, and, and writing. I mean, any number of creative outlets that, that move me in that way. Um, it's why, you know, a good song or a good movie or something that, you know, really gets you thinking, you know, makes, makes a difference. So that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, Yeah. they had, they actually had theory around this a lot. Mm -hmm. Right, mm-hmm. so um, the Allen Ginsberg, for instance, uh, used to used to teach and became like a very popular way of thinking about poetry. A way a teach a way of writing based on the idea that your first thought is your best thought. The idea of spontaneous writing, um, spontaneous poetry. That was that was really about ultimately was getting people to open up and express the aspect of themselves that they're that is closest to the thing that matters most to them. And often it's the most uncomfortable thing that you need to face. Bring the shadow material up. When, mm-hmm. And then that expression actually has a really strong vibration. And it gets you out of the status quo mindset where you're thinking about how can I most impress the person I'm writing for? It's like, no, don't try to impress him. Don't put yourself into the social space. Of, uh, of, of, of shared values. Get out of that, break away from that and express the thing in yourself that's really feeling the most depression, mm-hmm. right? That's that you're not able to really be who you are because of the society in which, you, in which you exist, in which you live in. And that thing that is being repressed, once it's expressed in a way that gets other people to pay attention because it's so, it's so high charged, mm-hmm enables folks to understand that they themselves are experiencing the same sense of oppression. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so tell me, you know, what, what do you start to do with that? I mean, I, I know you, you eventually kind of um, find yourself in, in really more of a media world. You know, wh- why? I mean, I, kind of how did that come about? And Because, you know, it, it feels like, 
you know, it, it could look like it's maybe disconnected from that same, you know, cultural, but in, but I know that's not the case. So, you know, explain kind of how that happened. Well, I guess actually what happened for me was that, you know, I spent my 20s really getting this education from some really extraordinary people, but I wasn't able to do very much with it, right? Outside of our little community, right? On the Lower East Side. And eventually, and I could make a living. And, uh, but eventually, I realized I got to get a job. So the only thing I really knew anything about was book publishing. So I went into the book publishing for a few years and did some interesting stuff with small presses. Um, but the real thing for me was when I had my first smell of the internet in 94, I, was, uh, I got to see early, uh, really some of the early websites back in the days when everything was gray backgrounds and every text was flush left. And, um, you know, you had no control over any kind of design. There were no animations. Um, but I was fascinated by this and uh, wondered what you could do with it. And I managed to uh, luck into a situation where uh, I was working for a little company that was wanted to do something with music and the internet, basically. Um, and they didn't really get the web particularly. They actually thought the web was kind of weird and didn't want to have anything to do with it. And they were doing a... They wanted them... Anyways, it's a techie thing. We're not getting into it. But I was given a couple of weeks where I could build my own fantasy of a music website just as a kind of a prototype of an idea. And uh, it was called SonicNet. was named the company. This was in 94. And when, we, uh, when I launched this, not launched, I built it with, with a designer there. I had some friends give me some articles that I could turn into you know, fodder. And when we put up this music website among the bunch of other kind of quirky little websites that were out there, for some reason, uh, Lisa Robinson, who is the music writer for the New York Post at that point, stumbled upon it and wrote about it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, really? We wow. got press coverage for this thing. And that gave me enough juice inside of the company to be able to, uh, to go ahead and really build my fantasy of what a music website could be, right? Um, and, uh, and that was SonicNet. And mm-hmm. SonicNet ended up being the first multimedia music site. We sold the first digital downloads. Um, we won the first music webby. You know, like we did a lot of stuff. But what was interesting for me at that time was it felt like in book publishing, because of the way that consolidation of the business had gone at that point, you really couldn't do the kind of thing that my dad had done Mm-mm. anymore. Um, that uh, a smallish independent press really could not regularly get books on the bestseller list and get the kind of distribution around the country and the press attention around the country that had been available 25 years earlier. It just was mm-hmm. no longer possible because of the, the way that the business had been restructured. Yeah. And I was frustrated and I kind of was like, now what do I do? I can't spend my life you know, selling Jackie Collins novels, you know, nothing against Jackie Collins person. <laughs> it's just not my life, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and so I was looking for a venue for some kind of alternative perspectives where we could bring this kind of outsider culture to a larger uh, distribution. And SonicNet appeared. And so I was able to say, send Allen Ginsberg to interview Beck mm-hmm. right, for yeah. us, wow. right, which was really fun. And, yeah. you know, things like that. I, Ralph Steadman did our first uh, 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 GIF animation. Ah, uh, cool. You know who he was? He yeah, was the guy yeah, yeah. illustrated uh, Fear and Loathing in the Australia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, big fan. Yeah. Very cool. So, so you, you're kind of, you know, Seeing all of this, you know, the 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 creative, the culture um, emerge now in in a new form, this new digital media, um, and and you know, it makes perfect sense to see kind of how you, you know, kind of you know, used your life experience into this emerging world, and and the world, you know, continues to emerge, especially you know, in the form of technology and other modalities, you know, things, you know, continue to change quickly, you know, maybe now more so than, than ever, you know, I think the kind of early days of the internet, um, I don't know, you know, it was a little slower for it to, 
to develop. Um, you know, maybe those were the biggest jumps, but uh, you know, I, I'm curious, kind of like how you continue to play in the media space, knowing how it's emerging as fast as it is, and, and continuing to keep the the, the voice. Of of that you know kid that grew up in that you know powerful time. I I know you've you know continued to try to follow and weave those two threads together, and and so maybe you can speak to that. Well, sure. I became a kind of digital media guru. One of those guys. There's a lot of us, right? You know, and I I did the textbook about the history of computer media that they used to teach the subject to kids in art school. Co-wrote that somebody who actually knew the subject, who taught it to me, and then we did a book together. Um, and, um, you know, just sort of kept looking for different kinds of projects that would enable that, this idea that if you can connect people in a way where uh, they're able to share their, in, their, their way of seeing the world from, an, from a different perspective than the mainstream, right? Uh, through this kind of, I mean, say countercultural perspective, right? Um, but really, uh, understanding the importance of, of our connection to one another and the planet and our interdependence, um, that, that, you know, powerful things can happen out of that, that opportunity. And I was always looking for where, where's the, the culture emerging that presents the most vital aspects of that worldview. And, in the mid noughts, uh, mid aughts, aughts or noughts? I always, I always get that mixed up. Feels kind of naughty, but it's oughty. In the, <laughs> in the mid aughts, uh, it was, um, you were seeing the Burning Man thing happen. I started going to Burning Man in 2003. There was a lot of energy that was coming out of a new interest, a revived interest in psychedelics um, that had a more shamanic kind of perspective than had been current in the previous years. Certainly meditation and yoga were taking off in a way that hadn't, you know, happened before. And there was a new kind of zeitgeist that was appearing uh, that really didn't have a, a much of a sort of a media home or platform. Uh, in fact, it felt really fringy back then. This stuff was really fringy back mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. And I was engaged with this at the same time that I was doing things like I was uh, producing Amnesty International's website out of London. And I was uh, consulting with Nancy Pelosi's office in DC to create a communication system for the Democrats in Congress while they were developing you know, bills to go through um, uh, the, the voting procedures. And feeling kind of schizophrenic about it, honestly. <laughs> you know, it felt like on the one hand, there's this culture which I was a part of and that I felt really had some juice to grow and become something that would really have an impact on the mainstream. While uh, I was uh, doing the kinds of jobs where if you even mention that you're in that world, you're jeopardizing your gig, right? And you might get fired. Uh, so it it was an interesting moment, right? Um, sure. So I'm, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm kind of curious because uh, you know I'm I'm a big proponent of really blending, and part of why we tell these stories is blending the the life experience into your work, and really, you know, sometimes these things that appear to be recreational or unrelated to you know kind of the traditional view of of work, of labor, you know, can actually be the the giant openings for being able to not only work but to love your work. Um, and so, you know, I'm kind of like imagining how you're, uh, you know, going out to Burning Man, which you know most people might view as fun, um, right? And and it is, but it's also you know, um, brilliant, you know, creatives that are, you know, pioneering and way ahead. And, and you're, you're kind of, you know, connecting these dots, you're having these experiences, you know, with kind of life that, that are really feeling like they're important to blend with your work. I'll tell you, I feel, I felt that at the time, but it didn't at the time, didn't seem that easy to do. 
Sure. <laughs> okay. Sure. So I was going, yeah. I was going through my own personal sense of like, well, this is where I want to be in the world, and how do I bring this into the world? Uh, at the same time, that the world wasn't really that interested in this stuff. This is mm-hmm. 13, 14, 15 years ago. Yeah, changed a lot. Things mm-hmm. have changed a lot in the last decade. Oh my gosh! The last three to four or five years. Yeah, I, I, last night I'm watching a, a show Billions with my with my son, and um, the the first episode of the season, the the hedge fund you know uh, guy goes with his sidekick uh, out to do ayahuasca, um, and they're like hmm. you know kind of flashy billionaires, you know, in mm-hmm. in kind of a dog eat dog hedge fund world, right? Like most of the shows about the SEC chasing them and you know that kind of thing. And now they find themselves in in um, you know what appears to be like upstate New York somewhere doing ayahuasca. And the second episode is all about the entire episode is about a play that they're trying to make to get into the psychedelic space. Um, that you know they're talking about psilocybin already being um, too late, and that they're you know trying to get into the I forget what they called it like uh, I don't know psychoasca or something you know. So funny. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, wow, like this is how far it's come that 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 it's being talked about in like a in a like a Wall Street show. Oh, it's totally changed so much, especially in the last four years. So for me, I don't know. So how do I? I, I was, I'm going to try to uh, kaleidoscope this. Is that the right word? I'm going to collapse this into a very short. Yeah, it's a short thing. When we started Evolver in 2007, I had made a really clear decision for myself that I had to go one way or the other, that I couldn't just... uh, uh, I was working with a bunch of people who ended up working on the Obama campaign. Some of them ended up in the White House. I was could have done that too, I think. Uh, It was certainly available at the time. As a, you know, a lot of people were jumping on board that, that bandwagon. But my vision of what I had seen in D.C. and just from the world at large at that point was, man, the mess is so great that even if we win, and I was feeling affiliated with the Obama folks, we win, it ain't going to be enough to really right the ship. And where the real energy is, frankly, if you ask me at that time, was it's coming out of Burning Man. And it's coming out of those alternative perspectives. So I'm just going to focus on that. And uh, I you know, got together with some friends and we created Evolver as this platform to give voice to this movement. Right? Uh, Reality Sandwich was the magazine that was the, the um, platform for a lot of these voices. For the next several years, it still felt like there was this very strange gulf between the world that uh, we were given, giving expression to and, frankly, you know, the world that I had just sort of really stepped out of. And a lot of those folks, frankly, stopped talking to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just said, mm-hmm. Ken's off the, gone off the edge. Mm-hmm. You know, deep, deep, deep space. Uh, maybe he'll come back, but we're not, we're not sure. And it wasn't until about 2013, 2014 that I noticed that things had really shifted and that some of the folks who I knew from that previous world were now sending me surreptitious messages asking me if I knew where they could do ayahuasca in Peru. Interesting, yeah. And that's when, uh, from my perspective, the world started to converge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that led to our founding the Alchemist Kitchen in New York. Uh, as a space where that kind of convergence could take place. The Alchemist Kitchen is a botanical dispensary and tonic bar on East 1st Street between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, if you're in town, and if there's no quarantine, come by and say hi. Yes, it's a wonderful place. Uh, I I love everything about it. Uh, We keep going. Yeah, so, you know, we're selling uh, a lot of herbal products, specialty-made herbal products by uh, boutique makers around the country who are generally essentially poet types, often people who are just, you know, well-trained in plants, deep in some kind of spiritual practice, often connected to some kind of mystical plant medicine connection. 
who also know some science and understand what happens when you start to combine certain plants together into new kinds of remedies for your own body and wellness and for your own connection to the earth. Um, and uh, we did a lot of events there, do a lot of things in that space that really helped to catalyze the scene in New York that was in many ways a, a psychedelic and uh, spiritual uh, meeting place for people who are opening up to this different way of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. You know, essentially like, you know, leaving their, their day job uh, at six o'clock in the, in the afternoon, wherever they may be. And then they could wander into an alchemist kitchen type environment and discover that where they could talk to other people about their meditation practice mm-hmm. um, and, um, and about their interest in plant medicines like ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And it put me in a really interesting spot because, you know, I got to talk to a lot of people who were having these kinds of experiences where they were on the one hand, you know, doing a, a day job that felt like it was of one, you know, the, the day job really didn't give them room to express this deeper part of themselves. And then they were discovering modalities like meditation or psychedelics where they were able to open up to an aspect of themselves they didn't know was there. And uh, what's happening, I think, now in these last, say, two years in particular, is that there's so many people who are having that experience that they're bringing that knowledge from the spiritual side into their workplace. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Whereas in the '60s, the Tim Leary message, right, which was uh, turn on, tune in, and drop out, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Well, drop out was a political move. Mm-hmm. Essentially, was saying you're going to choose which army you're on. Are you on the hippie army or are you on the the corporate gray suit army? Right. Today, uh, it's a very different situation. Yeah. Um, first of all. I mean, army may not be the right, it's not the right metaphor, not my favorite metaphor, but you know, we're all on the same team here, right? Right? They ain't nowhere to go. There is no, it's not as if you, if, if, if you want to not participate in the system that is essentially determining the use of all the resources on the planet, you let somebody else make those decisions, right? The planet only has a limited lifespan. Yeah. We're all in trouble. So you got to engage. You got to mm-hmm. engage, right? Mm-hmm. But what's interesting now is if you start to engage from this perspective of, I have had a, say, powerful spiritual meditation, psychedelic experience, and uh, I am seeing things somewhat differently than just the world is a resource to be consumed and uh, used in order for us to further our profits. Um, and you want to share that with somebody down the hall, today you're going to find somebody else down the hall who gets it. Yeah. You're not the only one. Yeah. In your company, in your business, in your not massive NGO, who sees the world through this understanding. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, I think you make a really good point about this dropout piece in how, you know, it's a little bit different in today's world for a variety of reasons. And I think one of them is that it's a lot more common, in, you know, even within, like you said, the last few years to be hearing about this kind of um, movement. And so, you know, I think people are, are more broadly engaging in it and, and they're doing it from um, a variety of perspectives, including the, the business world. I think the technology um, kind of aspect of that has also, um, you know, been part of, you know, the innovation and the creation and, and, you know, I think, you know, what I'm hearing you say is that um, people are now in a kind of like, let's do something with this knowledge, with this new mindset, this new um, experience. And, and, you know, that's what you were doing with Evolver, um, an alchemist kitchen, uh, and, you know, kind of pulling the Burning Man piece in and now kind of feeling like there was a need for a home, a community, an outlet, source of information. Um, and, you know, from, from, you know, what it appears, that's, you know, exactly kind of where you've landed. Uh, maybe uh, it's a good time to talk about Lucid. Yeah, so Lucid News really comes out of a, uh, a response to what's happening right now. 
Good. Um, in the world of psychedelics. Yeah, because I'm curious to hear about your thoughts about that. So you can you know, share with us about Lucid. And I'm also curious to hear about your thoughts about what's happening right now in the in the world of you know COVID and this pandemic and how all of that might be connected in your view. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a big one, but let's let's see. Let's, let's see if I can yeah. take Make one little bite first. at a time yeah. here. Okay. Um, after publishing Reality Sandwich for a dozen years and editing it for a dozen years, we, that really was an opportunity to uh, to present the way these different what had been siloed alternative culture scenes, the meditation world, the plant medicine shamanic world, the energy healer world. You can come up with a dozen or more of these, right? We're all part of one emerging uh, transformational worldview, right? And we're presenting essentially, you know, personal essays, stories, and interviews who are strongly subjective uh, and visionary often in their in their approach to show what's happening, really. And I think, you know, we hopefully played a role in in in, in giving a, a voice to that by showing the relationship between all these different ideas and 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 you know, but at a certain point, what had been so kind of peculiar for some people and very uh, outside of the mainstream was certain aspects that were being absorbed by the mainstream very quickly. Suddenly, you have, I think, is it 37 million Americans are doing yoga now? So a bunch of them are having Kundalini awakening experiences. Guess what, right? That happens when you go deep in yoga for some people, right? Not everybody, obviously, but it used to be very rare. Now, a lot of people are, are having these kinds of powerful spiritual opening experiences, or um, you're having, uh, or they're um, uh, psychedelics, which had been so you know really taboo. Um, we're sort of entering into a much more mainstream acceptance, and it didn't just happen that they're becoming more mainstream. A number of things triggered that. Number one is maps the organization that really has been spending the most energy and attention to raise money to do medical research around the use of psychedelics, particularly MDMA, was getting uh, you know, FDA fast-track approval for an MDMA therapy approach that um, looks like it will complete the, um, the third uh, round of clinic, clinical trials and become legal in a year or two, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a massive shift. That was the catalyst for so many other uh, organizations, including many, many companies, to see the opportunity to uh, develop medicines from psychedelics, which had been, uh, and there still are, Schedule One substances, which is to say, considered by the federal government uh, to have absolutely no redeeming value. Um, but in fact, you know, which makes them hard to procure and certainly not easy to do research around either, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, but there's so many positive research results that have been emerging over these last 10 plus years uh, that companies are now getting funding. I think there's been over $300 million worth of investment so far in mm-hmm. uh, psychedelic uh, medical uh, companies that are sort of using a pharmaceutical business model and yep. what they're doing. Well, we see this happening uh, alongside the legalization movement around the country. Three cities in the last year have legalized, uh, have, have decriminalized the use of plant medicines, right? In Denver, uh, psilocybin mushrooms were decriminalized. That was the first one. And then Oakland and Santa Cruz followed with, uh, with local laws that decriminalized a, a wide range of psychedelic or entheogenic plants, right? And now you have uh, ballots uh, on the coming up in in Oregon and in D.C. It looks like that both of those places are are on track to have votes um, about uh, decriminalizing uh, mm-hmm. plant medicines. So in different ways, this is just the top, the surface of a. Uh, of a real tidal wave of activity um, that represents a sea change in attitude around psychedelics. And what we felt was that uh, 
one thing that was really missing at this moment was a news source, a journalistic, fact-based news source Mm. that could cover the scene so that everybody who is in this world or interested in this world from the, the companies and the investors to the grassroots street activists to the um, to the people who are just sort of you know using interested in psychedelics from a more recreational perspective that everybody could share a similar set of you know fact based uh, references about what's actually happening in this scene at this moment because a lot of decisions are being made today. Uh, on the policy level and on a business level, it will affect how psychedelics are available to all of us for the next several decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, and boy, this is a big topic. You start to dive into it. But what I realized was that there needs to be a news a news source. And so I brought together a number of journalists who really know the space well, who are a part of the psychedelic community, and we created Lucid News together. That's great. It's really great. Um, and uh, I'll give you a chance to kind of make sure everybody knows where to find you and, and all that at the end. But I, I am really curious to kind of, you know, maybe pull this all together and, and kind of hearing a little bit about, you know, how you're seeing um, things. You're in Brooklyn. It's a very uh, challenging time um, for uh for New York, for the country, for the world. Um, and I'm curious, you know, how you um, are viewing this time. And, and also maybe if you can speak a little bit to kind of how you see, you know, some of the similarities, you know, um, you've, you've, you've had um, a long history in politics and, and around, you know, political movements. Um, and, 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 you know, you see a lot of kind of angst today. There's a lot of um, you know, separation. Uh, and, I, and I'm just curious kind of how you both see the world, you know, in the, in the COVID uh, pandemic and then also kind of how you see the similarities to, to, in, in, to you know, history. Well, I think I'm not alone in noticing that what the pandemic does is make us aware of how interconnected we are with everybody else across the planet, that our behavior is going to affect other people who we don't know, potentially, you know, dramatically. Um, And that we share a mutual responsibility for taking care of one another. It's, I think for some people, a real kick in the head, in the sense that, listen, I should be on my own. I mean, whatever I do doesn't, shouldn't really affect anybody else. So just leave me alone and, uh, you know, let me do my job and take care of my family and thank you very much. But, uh, and that's a big part of, you know, of the American ethos is this sense of the independent, powerful individual who can uh, essentially just do whatever you want. You have total freedom. That's what freedom is supposed to mean to some people. But what we're understanding is our not only mutual responsibility for one another and for the planet in a deeply visceral way, but also the awareness that it doesn't take much to demonstrate how how quickly we can change our behavior, Mm -hmm. right? That uh, if we have to, and we reckon there's good reason to do it, we can cut our consumption 25%, right? And suddenly cities that hadn't seen skies for decades have clear blue you know, vistas and, uh, and, and rivers that were, you know, running through cities that were so incredibly polluted. Now you got fish back in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the environment is resilient, right? Uh, at a time where the real challenge is, yes, COVID is, 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 is certainly a terrible thing. And I think we're all know people who have had to deal with that or, you know, some of us know people who have, who have died because of it. And that's been challenging, mm-hmm. I think, for everybody. But compared to the environmental crisis that we're going through, COVID is nothing. Yeah. It's minor league. Yeah. If we don't 
avert the environmental crisis in a couple of decades, and nobody knows when. We don't know what the tipping point is, but we know where the trajectory is is there. Um, we're going to face something that is much, much more difficult. Um, so, in a way, COVID is a favor. All right, COVID nineteen is is a is a little kind of twinkling uh, warning shot to make us wake up and see from a mature place what it means to be part of an interconnected planet where human consciousness is uh, responsible for maintaining the balance of life. That's a profound spiritual place to be, to see that and hold it and... um, and deal with the consequences of that. What does it mean for my own life? And what does it mean for the lives of everybody around me? How should we be living in this moment? We're going to go through this COVID thing. It's another year. It's 36 months in the States, especially now with the cities reopening again. The States, you know, it's it's a mess. Mm -hmm. Um, Brooklyn has been very challenging to live in during this time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for two months, you know, we, we've barely gone out at all. But, uh, you know, my kid is 10 years old. He hasn't seen any of his friends. He's doing the distance learning thing. I'm, you know, basically uh, tethered to my laptop uh, in order to have contact with anybody. And um, I go outside, you have to wear a hazmat suit. <laughs> it is what it is, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm curious, you know, what it sounds like to me is that there's, you know, a lot of kind of core beliefs, a worldview that's, you know, coming through and, and having you, you know, arrive at the conclusion um, that you just shared. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, what kind of like spiritual, you know, messaging or, or connections that you've had, if any downloads of sorts that maybe, you know, help also form that same opinion. Um, if it's, you know, at this point, one and the same for you, or if there's any kind of more woo-woo, you know, kind of insights about, you know, what's happening. You want to see how woo I can get? Oh boy, <laughs> sure. that's a challenge. That's a challenge. Okay, <laughs> how do I turn that down? Everything is a teaching, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the worst that can happen to you is you die. It's not so bad, which is not to say I'm asking for that or anybody should be asking for that, right? Mm-hmm. But everything else is fear right? There's only beauty and joy. We're living in an extraordinarily beautiful and joyful place that's available to us at any moment, no matter what your actual physical environment is, Mm. right? Which is something that uh, my work with plant medicine really did help me come to, Mm. right? Once you understand for yourself, can't convince anybody else of this, by the way, never going to lecture anybody into this. You can only get somebody to come to help you. To, you can only help somebody come to where you're at with this if they have their own experience, yeah. which can happen through art and culture, but also through plant medicine or meditation. It's, it's experience-based, yeah. right? Once you ha- are in that place for yourself, then it's like, okay, we're all learning here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's really you know a good place for us to wrap up because, you know, what gravity really is trying to do is provide a vessel for experiences. And, you know, like you've done with Evolver, Alchemist Kitchen, and now Lucid, you know, we're also trying to provide an opening, um, a place for people to come and explore um, all kinds of different ways that they might connect into that passion and that that kind of shift and nudge into maybe, you know, something that feels more of them and more aligned and maybe, you know, more divine. So um, I think it's a really great uh, way for us to kind of, you know, start to wrap up. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing, Ken. I think it's really important. You've got a long history in doing good work. And this is a time um, that, that, you know, maybe just as much as any, we still need good people out there talking about the issues and and being a part of the solutions. So, 
thanks for doing that. Thanks for being here. And any other kind of final thoughts or or uh, want to make sure people know how they can find you and Lucid? Okay. I mean, I, I just want to say that I, you know, I've been watching what you're doing with Gravity and been really impressed by it. It's a beautiful, beautiful space and the intention is really strong there. And I think it, uh, I think it's, it's a source of inspiration for many people. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, and creating spaces where people can meet and connect, even, you know, we're all going to, we're going to get through this pandemic. Um, physical location, physical proximity is, is key. Um, because you pick things up from other people because you're in the room with them, right? You can get some stuff through the voice or some stuff through the screen. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's all about the vibe. And, um, and gravity really is a lovely demonstration of that. Um, so for those who'd love to check out Lucid News, I hope you will. I hope you'll, you'll, you'll give it a look. We're publishing... Uh, news articles just about every weekday at this moment. It's a, um, I describe it as a proof of concept, right? Where, you know, we'll do about 20 articles and videos a month um, and expect to scale that up in the coming months. We're at lucid.news. So it's, you know, HTTP colon slash slash lucid.news. And that's where you'll find me and my cohort. Wonderful. Well, great, Ken. Thanks again. I really enjoyed uh, having you share your story today. Man, Brett, it's great to talk with you. Thanks a lot. You too. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 